So, page 930, and you'll probably be relieved to know, or perhaps disappointed, that we're not reading the whole of chapters two and uh, one and two. So, I'm reading, um, starting page 930, um, verses six to nine of chapter one, and then verses 12 and 13 of chapter two. Okay, so Micah, page 930, chapter 1, 69. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as wages of prostitutes they will be used again. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. And then chapter 2, 12 and 13. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a sheepfold, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. Thanks for reading that. Uh, do keep it open in front of you. Uh, someone, I said earlier that I heard, praying is, uh, praying is praising God for who he is, uh, thanking him for what he's done, and asking him for what he's promised. Um, I stuck in my head. Let me pray that as we come to look at God's words. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, as we read these words written so long ago, uh, please would you show us who you are? Would you speak to us about what you've done? And again, will you show us what you've promised uh, so that we might know how to pray and how to live uh, trusting the Lord Jesus? And we ask it in his name. Amen. Um, I don't know which way you, you tend. I'm, I'm slightly more pessimistic, I think. I'm slightly more pessimistic than optimistic. So you can imagine my anxiety in this past week. I was listening to a podcast that was about something called Existential Risks. Sounds bad, doesn't it? Turns out it is. I'd never heard of them before. Maybe you know about them. It's a way of categorizing uh, catastrophic events that could have an increasing cascading impact across communities, maybe even globally. Apparently, there's a number of possible threats that people are thinking about. There's artificial intelligence. What's it going to do? Um, climate change, biohazards, biomistakes, or bi- bioterrorism, plagues that might be because people worry about that kind of stuff. Maybe you worry about that kind of stuff. But then I thought, it's not, it's not the only thing that kind of ruins communities, is it? I remembered a conversation with an older lady I knew. She told me about being on the bus and coming off. She thanked the driver, and somebody said to her, what are you thanking him for? He gets paid to do this. And she said, why do people become like that? Um, or I think of another friend, a teacher, who told me he... He knew of schools that were like battlegrounds, not so much the playgrounds, but kind of caterers against the managers in the school context, teaching assistants uh, against teachers. 
Some workplaces become like that as well, don't they? Uh, maybe you've had that kind of experience. Uh, and then I, I remembered an article from The Telegraph that had a survey asking children what they wanted to be as they grew up. These, these were the results. Aren't these incredible? Um, top of the list for children uh, in this survey, just want to be rich. Uh, second one, uh, to be famous. Uh, 6%, you see that down at the bottom, don't want to work at all. It's great ambitions and aspirations to have in life. Uh, police officers, zookeepers, firefighters, doctors, bus drivers, shopkeepers, they're much lower. Church ministers doesn't even feature on it, um, surprisingly. 6% just don't want to work. Uh, what do you want? I just want to be rich. And you begin to wonder, don't you, what, what might a society start to look like where money becomes the most important thing? But perhaps you'd hear it in these words from the late Baroness Warnock. She was a former government advisor. She said this, if you're demented... You're wasting people's lives, your family's lives, and you're wasting the resources of the National Health Service. Or this other chap, Jack Attila, he's a a former president of the European Bank of Development and Reconstruction. Back in the 80s, it's a long time ago, uh, he said this, as soon as he gets beyond 60 to 65, man lives beyond his capacity to produce, and he costs society a lot of money. And then hear this, euthanasia will be one of the essential instruments of our future societies. It's quite something, isn't it? As someone else said, it's abundantly clear that unless something's done, the generation that killed its children through abortion will in turn be killed by its own children through euthanasia. Just to make sure that no one comes between us and our money. And you hear all those kind of things and you begin to wonder if there's not other kinds of existential risks that can ruin societies, maybe whole countries. The habitual grump on the bus that you see, the the desire just to be rich, or the slightly chilling conversations about when it might be cost-effective to end someone's life. I mean, we're not saying, are we? We're not saying kill the old and give us their money. It doesn't work like that. You know it doesn't work like that. It comes with Well, it comes with creeping change until even the youngest are saying, look, all I want, all I want is to be rich. And what about God? We're here in a church on a Sunday morning. What about God? What does does he think? What would he think? We we tend to feel, don't we, we're we're people with entitlements. We're entitled to work. We're entitled to health and health care. We're entitled to recreation. We're entitled to all sorts of things. And I guess even with God, we'd be We'd be entitled to him as well, whatever he's got to offer. Uh, but then you think, what about greedy people? What are they entitled to? What about selfish people? What are they entitled to from God? What, what about selfish societies? I mean, what is God like? And if you have that in your head and you begin to ask those sorts of questions, you'll you'll understand what Micah, this book that we're going to be looking at, is speaking into. We're in the first two chapters, and you want a sense of what's happening in Micah's day. Well, just have a look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Here's here's what he says. Woe to those who plan iniquity. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his house, a fellow man of his inheritance. 
And you track it down, down to, to verse 9 there. You see what else he's saying, uh, what's going on. You, you drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Uh, and you see it's a society with a craze for power and property and wealth. And the vulnerable, well, the vulnerable are getting mistreated, trampled on. And you want to understand the kind of thinking. How do, how do people get like this? You want to understand the, the thinking that's behind it. How does it start to become in this kind of way? And Micah says, well, look, just look at their religion. Just look at their spiritual life. Look at the way they worship. That was, that was back in verse 7 of the first chapter when Micah told us this. All her idols, the things they worship, all her idols will be broken to pieces since Israel gathered the wages of prostitutes. As the wages of prostitutes, they will be used again. It sounds an odd thing to say, talking about spiritual life. Uh, spiritual life that in, encourages promiscuous sexual activity. Well, what's going on? Well, in the north, Israel, uh, the country in the north, they picked up an idol called Baal or Baal, you, you might say. And he was kind of fertility god. And if you, if you wanted him to make your crops grow... It's part of your, your worship. Well, you, you live honoring his fertility activity. In other words, if you, if you want to be rich, indulge your sexual appetite. Of course, he doesn't quite say that. He doesn't, wouldn't have quite said it that way. And it certainly wouldn't have said, look, go out and oppress women and children. But you understand the way it works. The ideas that begins to embed in your thinking. Live for yourself. Indulge yourself. That's the way to get the most out of life. And it spreads till it shapes everything. And Micah seems to understand these people and what, what's going on with them. That's why the beginning of chapter 2, he says, oh, chapter 2, verse 11, if you find that, if a liar or deceiver comes and says, I'll prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. Get an idea of what's going on. A religion that says to you, above all, God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be happy and, and rich. It's not a million miles when you put it that way. It's not a million miles from the way our society thinks. It's not a million miles, is it, from, from the way some Christians and some churches think and operate of course, they're not, they're not promoting wine and beer in that kind of way. You, you don't walk through the doors on Sunday and they're handing you a pint. But, but it's more like the message you begin to hear is however you feel you want to organize your life, you should go for it. God's here to bless you. He wants to make you happy and feel happy. Uh, your relationships... However you want to organize them, that's fine if it works for you. Your involvement for church life, look, fit it in when you want. God wants you to be happy. It, it kind of nods towards God, but it's self-centered. And in the end, it will produce people who, who just want to live their way. And into that wor world, Micah brings a word from God, and alarmingly, what he says is, meet the judge of the whole world. I say uh, judge because this book begins like a court case. We, we didn't read the beginning, but if you look back to verse 2, you, you'll know what I mean. It starts like this. 
Hear you people, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you. It's a courtroom scene. And God's the chief witness. He's the judge. Verses 3 and 4. Look, he says, look, the Lord is coming from his, his dwelling place. He, he comes down and he, he treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him. Sometimes say, maybe you've had to say this in your home when you get really cross. I'm, I'm putting my foot down. This has got to stop. Well, that's this. That's what this is telling you, is God's putting his foot down. Now, if you're Judah... If you're the people of Judah, you are feeling good at this point when you hear it. Israel split into two. What's called Israel is now the northern kingdom. It's got its capital in Samaria. The southern kingdom's called Judah. It's got its capital in Jerusalem. That's where Micah is and where he's speaking. Verses 5 and 6 sound very good if you're in Judah because God is putting his foot down on Israel and he says it will land squarely on Samaria. It's about time, God. Those northerners... They're bad. Everyone knows northerners are the bad ones, don't they? If you're from the south, people from the north are the bad. They're the ones that split countries apart. They're the ones that go the wrong way. It's the northerners. About time, God. Put your foot down on them. So why does Micah start crying in verse 8? Why does he start crying and properly crying? I mean, he says he's going to weep and wail. I don't know if you've ever been around someone who's crying. You know, I'm a bloke. I, I usually feel a bit uncomfortable and shuffle out of the room saying something about, well, I'll just make a cup of tea. That'll make things better. But being around someone who is not stopping crying, wailing, it's uncomfortable. And that's what, that's what Micah's like. And the answer is verse 9. If you see it there in front of you, at verse 9 of chapter 1, for Samaria's plague is incurable. Samaria's plague, the selfish abuse of greed, it's, it's actually not just incurable. Micah says it's, it's like the worst nightmare of an existential risk. It's cascaded and it's spread all the way to Jerusalem and joined the dots. If God's judged Samaria, what do you think a consistent an impartial God will do when it comes on to Jerusalem. What is God like? Mike has joined the dots. And that's why he says in verse 15, I will bring the conqueror against you. In 722 BC, the Assyrian army invaded Israel, captured Samaria, deported the people never to return again. Join the dots. 21 years later, the Assyrians came to Jerusalem. I don't know if you remember the film. Some of you are probably even too young uh, to know. Four weddings and a, fu- and a funeral. Uh, there's, a, there's a scene in the film, uh, the funeral scene, when someone recites a piece of poetry. Uh, you might know it's the W.H. Auden one, Stop All the Clocks. Prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone. Silence the piano and with muffled drum, bring out the coffin. Let the mourners come. It's a really moving point in the film, if you see it. I only had to hear 
the first line and the, the emotions of it hit me again. Words do that. Verses 10 to 16 of chapter 1. It's a piece of poetry. It's a song. And that first line where it says, Tell it not in Gath. Everyone listening to Micah knew those lines because he's taken it from another piece of poetry. Another song that King David wrote hundreds of years before in the morning that he heard King Saul had been killed in battle and the Philistines had defeated Israel. The emotions of, of that part of their history. A king killed, a nation defeated. It's a funeral song. Tell it not in Gath. And you understand Micah, through his tears, is saying to these people, I'm singing your funeral song now. These words are for you. He says, meet the judge of the whole world because he's Israel's judge too. Don't think because God blessed you in the past, he'll turn a blind eye. He's come to put his foot down on selfish, abusive greeds and the kind of people it produces. As we, as we as a church family, as we listen to Micah over the next few weeks, we'll get an answer to this question, what is God like? And we'll hear serious words. But we'll also hear hope. And you begin to hear it, first of all, in chapter 2, in those verses 12 and 13 that were read for us, where it says this. Just have a look at it. It says, God speaks to these people, and he says, I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will, I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like flock in the pasture. The, the place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the wall will go up before them. They will, they will break out through the gate and go out. The king will pass through before them the beginnings of a promise that God will gather these people like a well he describes them like a bunch of noisy bleating sheep not knowing where to go and he will become for them the way he kind of describes it as you put the imagery together is it's kind of like a shepherd king someone who will rule but do it in a way that protects and guides in 701 BC the the Assyrian army did invade Israel. A remnant fled to Jerusalem for a, a final last stand. It was hopeless. But against all hope, their king, their king, kind of like a shepherd to the people, Hezekiah humbly cried out to God on behalf of them. And the Assyrians withdrew. Jerusalem was spared. The gates were open. God kept his promise. And Micah is saying, look, Meet the judge of the whole world who was willing to rescue Israel too. They weren't entitled to that. That wasn't something they deserved in any kind of way. But the judge, the one who really was the judge, became the rescuer as well. What is God like? What is he like? How do you think of him? Uh, and that's all well and good as a bit of history. Uh, it's just, I guess, that Micah, if he, if he was standing here, if you were talking to him, maybe you, you had a, a coffee with him after the service, he might say to us, look, if we stop there, you've not really joined all the dots. Uh, there's one more and rather obvious connection, because if God was like that back then, and he's impartial and he's consistent, there's no reason to doubt he'll be the same today. This is what he's like now. I mean, join the dots, Samaria to Jerusalem, 
Jerusalem to you and me, to us today, right here in Cambridge. And you look at these guys, they seem a long time and a long way away, don't they? But as you look at them, a society that's self-obsessed, focused on money, lacking in genuine care, and happy to generate the kind of religion that encourages you to think, God just wants you to be happy, whatever you do. You pull it like that and you think, that's not a million miles from you and me. And so Micah would say to us as well, look, listen to the judge of Israel because, because he's your judge too. This funeral song, now this funeral song, now it could be sung for us. Now these chapters, they're, they're here to persuade us this is what God's like. And if he put his foot down then, he can do it again. In fact, the rest of the Bible says he He's promised to do that a final time. To put his foot down a final time, to end injustice and to bring everyone to their day in court, you and me included. Uh, the smart question, I suppose, as you, as you think about this, the, the smart question is not, will he do it? Will he really do it? He's not done it yet. That's not the smart question. No. The smart question would be, is there a chance? Is there a chance, like he did back then, is there a chance that he might provide a shepherd king for you and me too? As a church, we've been going through John's Gospel. If you've been here over the past weeks and months, you know we've been going through John's Gospel. If you're back here tonight or listening online, we're going to begin to get into chapter 10. And what you'll hear in that chapter is Jesus Christ standing up and saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. And if you've got these Old Testament promises ringing in your ears, you know what he's saying. He's saying he's, he's the fulfillment of God's promises. He's the one who can save people through judgment. He's the one who must rule you. But when he does, you'll find his rule. It's not, it's not tyrannical and it's not dehumanizing. In fact, it's liberating and protecting because he's the shepherd king. And knowing him, you'll become not self-obsessed. But good news for others as well. And we'll find over these weeks ahead, it's always Jesus that Micah is pointing us towards. And he's saying, look, listen to the judge of the whole world because he's willing to rescue you too. What does that mean for us? So when the Bible points these things out, it's never to, in the first place, say, look, like all of you here in Cambridge, what you need to do is just try harder. Never just saying that. He's saying something far more devastating. He's saying this is part of the plague that blights the human heart and it's spread even to you. Now, this is who I am and who you are, Christian at Christ Church, deserving God's judgment and it will come. Do you feel that about yourself? Have you felt that about yourself? It takes humility to trust Jesus' words, to listen to what he says, that we don't in the first place need to try harder. What we need is a Savior who will rescue and rule us. But the Bible does also speak of change. So for, for those of us who would say we are people who trust Jesus, we, we do want to follow him, it's, it's worth asking the question, look, what impact is it having on our, our living, on our selfishness? on our desire for things, that we just want our own way. Are you a greedy person? It's a good question to ask. It's one of the, 
the sins, the New Testament, flags up again and again, greed. But I don't very often hear anyone say, will you pray for me? I'm a greedy person. It's not something I would like to say about myself, but it makes me ask, am I a greedy person? Wanting gadgets, money in the bank, clothes, furniture, food, holidays, all those things. Think of my friend James, who's really excited about getting a new iPad. He kept talking about, I'm going to get a new iPad. And then he told me his wife had said to him, James, have you stopped reading the Bible recently? Are you still having your times in the morning to read the Bible? And he said, what, what do you mean? He said, well, I've noticed while we've been married that whenever you stop reading the Bible and thinking about what God says, you start talking about other things much more and wanting other stuff. The more you read the Bible, the more you seem to be content with what gives you. Ouch. When your wife says things like that to you. What about you? Are you a greedy person? Jesus says he is the good shepherd who is not greedy for his own personal gain. He gave away his own life on the cross to make you and I rich. So he knows. He's the one who knows how to guide us in ways that lead to joyful, self-giving love. And Micah is saying, come and meet a God like this. Come and meet a God who's like this. What could we do this week? When it comes to a society, a wider society that maybe we look at, and some of the things, it, it just feels selfish and greedy. And it's hard to imagine making much of an impact, but we can start with ourselves, can't we? We can start at home. Um, as individuals in a church family, you just think about life in your own house and family life. Someone said one of the greatest gifts that dads can give children is to love their mums and love them well. Dads, those of you who are dads, how's that going? Are you modeling in a way that can be seen that kind of unselfish love at home? It'd be a good conversation to have dads and mums, wouldn't it? What can we do to follow the good shepherd more and be less selfish with each other? So it'd be a good conversation anywhere among among Christian friends, teenagers, housemates. And those of you who are single, it can be a hard stage of life, can't it? Being, being single can be hard in all sorts of ways. There's many challenges to being single and you, you feel them, but it's worth remembering one of the things that will be hard about being single is the battle with selfishness. To live in your own and to just want things done your own way. To all of us, it's worth asking that question, isn't it? What can I do if I'm following the shepherd king to serve others better? And then just finally, is, is our church family here at Christchurch, have you understood that about who we are and what we are? We're not just a group of individuals who've come together. We're, we're people God's forgiven through Jesus and he's beginning to shape us by his word to be a kind of, I guess, a counter-cultural community here in Cambridge. To live in a different way. A group of people who feel grateful, not entitled. Not showing up feeling entitled to things, but grateful. And it's worth asking, are we displaying among one another unselfish, sacrificial love and service? That, that's part of the vision we have for our church family, for our good and for the good of the city. And it's actually, it's trying to be there from the moment you walk in the door, that kind of unselfish, sacrificial love. Did you, did you think about that, about the people who came early? Missed that extra coffee at home or the extra lion so they could be here to, to welcome you with a smile, to serve you in that way as you walk through the door. 
I don't know how you think about battling existential risks as they come. But if you want to battle, even in a little way, the existential risk of selfishness, why not even catch the vision of the welcome team here at Christchurch? You're not serving anywhere else. That could be a great place to start. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. We, we're full of all the things that we think we deserve and that we're owed and we're entitled to. And then as soon as we look at Jesus, as soon as we look at the way he's given himself away for us, we're brought low and shamed and yet encouraged by his grace. And thank you, Lord Jesus, it's you It's you that makes us want to live trusting and following you. And please would you help us as a church family to do that. We ask it in your name. Amen.